Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast, where we focus on how authors found success, looking at strategies that have taken them to the top of the bestseller charts, as well as what they've learned from their mistakes. Because being an indie author is more than knowing the latest marketing trend. It's about being innovative and creative and learning from your mistakes. Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. I'm Sarah Rosette. And I'm Jamie Albright. And today on the show, we have Jenny Wheeler. Yes, we did. Yes. So we talked to Jenny about podcasting for readers Mm -hmm. because she has a podcast called The Joys of Binge Reading. Mm -hmm. And uh, we chatted with her about like how she figured out she wanted to podcast Mm -hmm. and um, how she she has two separate newsletter lists, one for her fiction list and one for her podcast list. And so we talk a little bit about how she juggles that. And she also takes a month off and goes on vacation because she's in New Zealand. So we chatted about taking time right. off. Right. You know. And how beneficial that can be. Yeah. yeah. Scary, yeah. but beneficial. Yeah. So that is coming up. And Jamie, what have you been doing this week? But I've just been writing, you know, just writing. I've got a hard deadline on this book that I'm working on, which is to the editor by May 12th. If I don't get it to her by May 12th, I have to wait till August. So, oh. Yeah. So it's May 12th because I don't want to wait that long. Mm. Um, but I've still been, you know, today I wrote 4,000 words and mm. I kind of have to do that every day to mm-hmm. get to where I need to be. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the first draft will be done by this week, this week, mm-hmm. but I've never taken, I mean, that gives me five or six weeks to edit and I know most people are like I can write a whole book in five or six weeks but I have never I have never edited a book that fast so we will see how it goes um I am using pacemaker which does really help me because it gives me a visual of you know how many words and everything but I will say that I am at almost 60,000 words and I haven't hit the midpoint of this book yet Uh so yeah uh, so I have a feeling the 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 front end is overwritten and the back end will be underwritten. Uh, Maybe a little skimpy. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, oh my gosh. Okay, so it's pacemaker, but is pacemaker. it an app? It's a it's you um you can just put it in your uh, computer. It's okay. a website. Yeah. Okay. And they have All a right. free program and they have paid programs, but with the free program, okay. you get up to two projects. And so you put in like oh. you put in your project name and how many words and if you're writing or drafting or editing or whatever mm-hmm. I mean it's it's a task thing as well mm-hmm. a task tool yeah. and then you put in the words and your start date and end date and it will tell you how many words and you can do different things you can do steady or you can do like up and down like some days you do more and some days yeah. you do less or start off less and go to more or vice versa and so <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of cool. And then if you, every day you put in your progress and it updates it. And, uh, you can that sounds see. awesome. Like yeah. when you put in progress, you say done and this little confetti goes off. It's very mm-hmm. motivating. So. That is cool. That yeah. is it's, cool. it's helped. It's helped. So. Yeah. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. How about That's you? Good. What's going on with you? Well, I have been editing this week because yeah. my deadline that we're recording this on March 28th mm-hmm. and my deadline was today. And mm-hmm. so, and like you were saying, your editing time, I cannot write a book in five weeks. And it takes me about two weeks to, too hard, too 
full weeks mm-hmm. of work to edit if I just edit. And I'd rather have like three, yeah. but I got it done. And so I yeah. sent it off this morning. So awesome. that's a huge relief. Yes. But, um, one of the questions some, somebody asked a while back was like, how do you know when you're done editing and when it's time to send it to the editor? Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have a good answer then. Usually I just kind of know that I know that it's done. Mm-hmm. But this time, like I, I do, I do one read through and I'm figuring out the big picture and like motivation and like, oh, I forgot to explain why this is important. Mm-hmm. Blah, blah. So I fix all that stuff. And then the second time I read through, I realize I'm going through and I'm taking out, I put in words on my first pass. Mm-hmm. And then on my second pass, it's like I take out a whole bunch of words. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'll find things that are like, um, she held the book in her hand. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't need in her hand. So I delete yeah. that. So I start yeah. and needed and I thought this is how I know that I'm getting near the end is that mm-hmm. I'm just not fixing major things. It's like mm-hmm. little things. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge relief. And I don't want to do that again. I don't want right. to be down to the wire. I'm super impressed because there is an unfortunate video of me this past summer when I sent my book to the editor and I had a little too much to drink. So um, <laughs> yeah, my family loved them. They took a video of me. So you're upright and <laughs> clearly I'm so impressed. Well, yeah, that it, it was not as pretty last night when I got done. I came out of my office, my hands up. I was like, yay. And my family was like, oh, the hands are really She's done. Thank you. We've missed you. <laughs> I know, yeah. I've really been on it. So I've oh, had that going on. And then I, so now like I feel like my focus is changing. So like mm-hmm. I was in my writing, drafting, editing mode. Right. Now I'm kind of switching over to promotion mm-hmm. a little bit, just like thinking about what I want to do. And I was thinking about our interview we did with Adriel. Mm-hmm. And she talked about automating things. And I've been mm-hmm. trying to think about ways to automate just different parts of the things that I do mm-hmm. that, you know, aren't writing. Cause I don't right. other than like checking in and writing every day. I don't know how you could right. automate that, but um, I was thinking about my newsletter and I'm starting a newsletter for um, the historical mystery day mm-hmm. thing that I'm doing. And I'm just going to send out new releases. So like the new releases that were that week or that month, and so if anybody's interested in that, they could sign up. It's at sarahrosette.com slash HMD sign up. So if you're a historical mystery reader or writer and you want to get caught up on, you know, what's coming out. So I'm going to try my automation uh, ideas with that and see how that works. Like I could gather the ones I want to have in the newsletter mm-hmm. and pass them off to Adriel, my assistant, and have her like create it. And then send it out. And so that way it wouldn't be that much. I wouldn't be recreating it every week. So we'll see how that goes. So starting to think about things like that. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. And um, basically answer all my email because I haven't answered email for a week. (laughs) And that is not like me. I like to answer email. Yeah, get it cleared out. out. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get on with the show. All right. Here we go. All right. Today on the podcast, we have Jenny Wheeler. Hi, Jenny. How are you doing? Great. Thank you very much. Hi from New Zealand. Oh, we're so glad you're here. Thank you for being on the show with us. Uh, So here, let me read a bio. Jenny Wheeler is convinced that there is no better time than now to be a woman. But if she was faced with making a second choice, it would be the 1860s California, the setting for her historical mystery series of gold and blood. Before writing historical mysteries, Jenny had an equally exhilarating career as a newspaper and magazine editor. When Jenny is not writing or chatting with other authors for her podcast, The Joys of Binge Reading, she splits her time between a home on Auckland's Upper Harbor and a modest vintage caravan. So that oh, sounds interesting. Cool. Yeah. 
<laughs> it is lovely. And we've just had summer, so I've had a bit of time in the caravan this year. Yeah. That's cool. great. So tell us how you got into writing, Jenny. Look, I had a very full life doing all these other things. As Sarah's mentioned, I was in journalism for more than 30 years. And then after that, I went and started a business with my partner, which I ran for 17 years. And that gave me a nice little nest egg, a superannuation fund. When I sold the business, I could think, oh, what am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things that every time I stopped doing all the other things I was doing, I thought I'd really like to write some fiction. I did do a couple of nonfiction books during that period that I was a journalist, but I hadn't done any fiction. And so I just thought it would be a really good thing to try. And it wasn't as if I felt that if my life wouldn't be fulfilled if I didn't do it, but I just thought I'd really like to have a go at this. And so that's mm-hmm. what I did. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. That is great. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we don't think we're quite ready to do writing, but sometimes I think you just have to dive into it. You know? mm-hmm. Absolutely. And maybe, you know, when I look back, maybe I left it too late, but honestly, everything else was just so full on for so many years. There was one stage in the middle of my journalism career where I had a holiday, a week week's break where I immediately got ill, which sometimes mm. you do when you overdo it. Mm-hmm. And I sat in bed plotting my 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 great novel. At that stage, it was going to be about women's and ma- women and magazines because that was what I was writing. <laughs> yeah. But right. then I went back to work and it all got shelved, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> well, that is interesting. Well, so what is your definition of a success? My definition, I think that I do feel a success right now, even though my sales figures aren't what I'd like them to be. You know, I've still got a gap between where I am and where I'd like to be, but I've now Mm -hmm. got eight books out and that seems unbelievable to me in the first place because, (laughs) you know, it has happened all remarkably quickly. And I've got 160 episodes on the author podcast that I do. I'm I'm into book nine and I've got a kind of rhythm and a pattern going now. Mm -hmm. I think this current series will probably only last another couple of books and I'm already thinking about, What's my next series going to be? And I'm, I've got a life that's got a one and a half full t- times full-time job, I say just about. <laughs> so the word retired doesn't come near it, although I'm of that age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is true. Sorry. I love having the chance to talk to the authors on the podcast. That's a really lovely, exciting dimension of my life because you do get that sense of being part of an international community with people who are passionate about the same things as you. And when you live in a smallish country like New Zealand, finding those people to meet face-to-face is not so easy. And I think probably for many people in the States, if they live in smaller communities, it's Mm -hmm. not as if there's um, writers doing what you're doing just down the street. So this digital communication is fantastic for us, I think. Mm -hmm. It is. And we we love doing the podcast for the same reason. We love talking to people, especially this year, because ours started right before we went into lockdown and stuff. And um, it sort of saved my sanity being able to talk to people. And I love it. Um, What do you wish you'd known about writing in craft when you started? Well, I think that I would have considered more carefully exactly what I was going to choose as my niche. I mean, I was drawn to 1860s California for personal reasons. I grew up in an area of New Zealand which was quite close to where the New Zealand gold rush 
was, a bit later than in California, but very similar kind of social conditions. And when I was a kid, we used to actually explore old gold mines. I mean, it Mm. makes me shiver now to think my mother (laughs) never even realized that we were going into these places. And I used to cart home great globs of quartz every summer back to Mm. the farm where where I lived. And so I I think there was something in my blood about fascination with gold mines. And so I chose 1860s California. And for all the reasons that you mentioned, I think it was an amazing time. 1860s was nearly 20 years after the initial gold rush. Mm -hmm. In the initial gold rush, it was a very hard time for women. And most of the women there were either running boarding houses or lying on their backs. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but by 20 years later, it had started to become very much more of a community with wives and schools and hospitals and towns Mm -hmm. and and a real social um, scene starting to take place. But women still had a lot more freedom, I think, than they did in other places. It was still a little bit of an edge of the Wild West. And that's always appealed to me because it gives you a chance to have your heroines doing things that might have been considered just terribly shocking in some other places. So Mm -hmm. that's partly why I'm excited about it. I think the same thing actually in the podcast. There's so many historical fiction writers now who are unearthing women's stories. There's just an absolute boom, mm-hmm. really, in historical women's stories being unearthed. The women that weren't ever really celebrated in their own time um, are now becoming unearthed, and and I love that too. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, that's yeah, that's amazing. I love. Well, it's just like um, I watched Hidden Figures. Again, it's about the three um, black women who were integral to the whole NASA thing. Absolutely. That book came out, I mean, that movie came out in 2018. Prior to 2018, I knew nothing about that. I live in Houston. I'm in Texas. I mean, this all happened at NASA in California, I mean, in um, Florida. Florida. And, you know, I mean, but we're connected to NASA here. I knew nothing about that. And I just kept saying, how do we not know that? I mean, (laughs) so I just love finding out these women have, you know, women have done all these amazing things prior to what we consider to be, you know, the uh, age of women really taking control. Totally. And even the great boom in World War II fiction, a lot of it relates to women spies, women journalists, people yeah. we hardly knew yeah. existed. You know, my mother worked at Bletchley Park, actually, and Kate Quinn's just written a new book that's got Bletchley Park as its setting. It's suddenly become something that's really mass market, and yet mm-hmm. for years it was just in a way, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, so you said that you wish you had maybe chosen a slightly different niche when you started out, even though you loved the 1860s. Yeah, that's uh, that had to do with I, marketing or yeah I discovered quite I, I was a member of romance writers for quite a few years just because their um conferences had such a good mix of marketing and craft speakers mm-hmm. they were they're really good conferences mm-hmm. and um I, I did pitch to a, an agent at one of those conferences very early on when I didn't have a finished manuscript mm-hmm. and as soon as she heard 1860s California she said oh a Western. We don't really go for Westerns. <laughs> and I thought, to my mind, it is not a Western. There's not a tumbleweed in sight. But um, <laughs> I realised, and that has actually, I mean, at the time I just ploughed on because I was enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. But if I'd, if I'd been really savvy and listened, I might have changed tack right there because 
it has been difficult to find the right niche. It seems to me quite surprising that that period of the really the gilded age of California from uh, late 1860s on to the 1900s, that 40 years seems to me a fascinating period in Californian history. It's it's the real gilded age in the West, and yet it's not about the Westerns and tumbleweed and all the rest, mm-hmm. but it hasn't found an identity yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I jokingly think to myself that we need to get together and create this. Like some of the romance writers in the East are now getting into gilded age romance in New York mm-hmm. and stuff. Well, Something needs to happen on the other coast for the Golden Age period there. So, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of a bit of an enthusiast for it, but it's difficult to find the right keywords and the right yeah. authors to match up to and that kind of thing when you're trying to target market, yeah. Right. yeah. Right. And certain eras kind of go in and out of fashion in exactly. historical mystery or yeah. historical yeah. books. And you had an interview with Lauren Willock recently, and she talked about the synergy between different time periods. And I thought that was fascinating because there are certain things that like, they just resonate. Like right now, World War II books are just so popular, but a few years ago, maybe not. And so Mm. maybe, you know, 1860s California is just, you know, it's time hasn't come yet. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that. (laughs) And let me just say, we've never used the word synergy on our <laughs> show. I'm kind of impressed. <laughs> so moving right along then, um, what assumptions did you make at the beginning of your writing career? And looking back, did they turn out to be right or wrong? I think that I did I did a, quite a lot of research being the journalist that I am. And I discovered um, Joanna Penn very early mm-hmm. on in my, mm-hmm. so I very much followed her idea of publishing wide, and I don't regret that. I I, I still very much am convinced that it's the right thing for me. And being indie, at my age and stage, there really wasn't any other way to go. So I'm very, very lucky that I struck it. And that's the other thing. If I'd started earlier, I would have definitely had to have gone the route of agents. And and that thing of publishing one book a year, which actually I, I think for a lot of trad authors these days that might be a bit of a kind of um halt on their possibilities of 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 real success because it's a little bit slow perhaps from Mm -hmm. the way that the market is now but anyway um yeah I just think that generally I I was quite right in what I used as a strategy but it probably just takes a bit longer than what you really hope it will at the beginning you know I I I sort of joke that I've got this thing, I've actually got it on the wall behind me, a quote from romance author Stephanie Lawrence, who says, don't expect to get anywhere until you've got at least six books published and possibly as many as 10. Well, I'm up to eight now, and I'm still sort of regarding that as my mantra a bit, you know, and saying, you just hold on in there, you've got to just keep going. And because Mm -hmm. I do really enjoy it as well, it's not a hardship to do it, yeah. But it does take longer than what you ideally might want. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard because especially when you when you're still looking for that niche, but if you find that niche, which I'm sure after people listen to this, um they may be going, "Ooh, 1860s." 1860s. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's a, uh, but if you find that niche, yeah, it's just amazing that you can Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, so, in San Francisco in the 1860s, they had French restaurants and all sorts of things. You know, it was getting to be, it was the Paris of the West, they called it. You know, I mean, the, wow. it was it was a great place. But anyway, yeah. That's <laughs> um, so 
have you ever made a mistake that turned out to be a good thing? We like to ask this question. Um, let me just think about that. A mistake that turned out to be a good thing. Um, I think that probably that thing of what I was talking about in the earlier, finding my tribe, you know, there's that phrase that if you get, what is it, a thousand, um, thousand you know, yeah. true fans, yeah. True fans. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a database now of, of quite a lot more than a thousand, and it just takes a little longer than what you really think to get that momentum building, I think. That's that's probably what yeah. I'd say, but it's it, it's it's more of an assumption that taking a little bit longer to fulfill than what you might have ideally wanted. I'm not a patient person either. (laughs) I don't think any of us are. I thought I was really patient until I had children and I was like, Oh, I'm not patient. at all. (laughs) Well, what about the opposite? Have you ever had something that you thought was just like such a brilliant idea and then it turned out to be not so great? I don't think so really. Um, I'm probably just, still at that stage of working so hard like a little duck paddling to keep everything <laughs> keep myself afloat I might not even had time to reflect I think that everything I've done I feel it's the right call and it's more a matter of hanging in there and just keeping faith and keeping on going you know um, the podcast really does seem to be building a bit of um, steam now I'm getting quite a few approaches from publishers offering me their books you know their authors for Mm -hmm. especially in Australia Hashit Australia and Simon Mm -hmm. & Schuster Australia and things that they're very happy to have me interview their authors whereas when I started out I was a little bit self-conscious about I've got nothing to prove that I'm going to be able to do this now I seem to have developed a little bit of credibility in that area so Mm -hmm. I think that I just say honestly just do your do your research and then back yourself, go for it. And sometimes you might have a slightly fallow period where you think, is this working? But I've never found anything yet what I think I've got to give up on this. The only thing I do think is you need to evolve a bit. Some of the things that you think might have worked at the beginning, you might not, you know, be able to make right. them. You have to evolve into something else, even if it's just technology. Right. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. That's very true. I think you make a really good point and you said it a couple of times, but just kind of waiting, just keep doing what you're doing. It's going to come, you know, you just have to keep pursuing and writing your good books and doing, you know, staying on track. And then at some point it just clicks for a lot of people. And so, yes, I think uh, that's right. And, you know, mm -hmm. quite a few of the authors as you would have found that you've spoken to, I mean, I find it very heartening. A lot of them, have written a lot of books before they actually got that breakthrough book. I always love to hear those stories. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) me too. Yeah, absolutely. How important do you think mindset is in, um, in this whole process? Honestly, I think it's probably absolutely essential, the mindset that you've got. You just, I mean, every single author that you speak to, you find that they have those days where they stare at the computer and they think, I can't do this or I've got no inspiration today. And you just have to keep on going when those times hit and not let the kind of, you know, the black dog get get at you. Mm -hmm. So I think mindset is critical. I I really do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Have you had to make any mindset changes or shifts as you've gone through this process? Look, it's interesting that you say that. Last year, we had our first lockdown in COVID was in April last year. And we had quite, I think, I can't remember, it was probably about five weeks of lockdown Mm -hmm. and it was level four. So you you weren't supposed to go anywhere except the supermarket and the um, pharmacy with a, with a, mask on sort of thing and I realized at that point that I was doing far too much um actually I really loved almost being locked away and prevented (laughs) from doing all the things I was doing it was a real rest in a way and at the end of that period I I dropped five things that I was doing but none of them actually specifically related to writing they were more extra things that I had going on in my life that I realized we're actually just overloading me too much and far as far as everything else I've got on. So I really streamlined my life in other ways at that mm-hmm. time. I mean, I was doing a um I was doing some conservation work out, out in the um, ranges in the forest here. And I'd been doing that for a long time. And I decided that I'd had my fill of that. I'd been doing it for over a decade. Just some of those community commitments I let yeah. go of. And um that was the streamlining, but not. It was more to make room for all the rest rather than um, streamlining of my own work. The other thing I've done though is I do employ someone to help with the um, design work. I've, a, a person that I did employ in our business at one stage, who's now living in Singapore and is a, y- a young mum, and she does a few hours work a week a week for me on things like creating some Pinterest pins or whatever mm-hmm. design work. And yeah. that it's great because she puts templates up on Canva that then I can then do some of it myself, but we've got a sort of a good branding <laughs> established and that kind of thing. So I have farmed out things to other people as well a little bit, as much as my budget can afford, you know, but yes. modestly, but it just yeah. takes some of the weight off you. Yeah. That leads me into a question that I hadn't planned to ask, ask but um, what, what social media platforms do you find that you get the most bang for your buck, like Pinterest or Instagram or Facebook? Or I mean, I'm just curious with the historical mysteries because with romance, you know, it's different, different. than it is. Yes, that. yes. I I definitely feel that I get the most response from Facebook and Pinterest, but that might also reflect my personality a bit that I don't mm-hmm. think I quite understand fully how to do Instagram and Twitter. I do I do put pretty well all the images that I create. I put on all of them, but I th- certainly think I've got the best response from Facebook and Pinterest. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Sarah, you do Pinterest too, don't you? I do, but I don't do it in a like weekly or daily. I'm not in there every day. You know, some people it's like their first go-to social media Mine is more like more more static. Like I'll create a board for a book, and then I leave it, and I don't do much to it. <laughs> so yeah, do quite a big um, each one. I probably do at least three or four images mm-hmm. for each weekly podcast, and put them wow. on oh, all wow. of the social media. So I'm fairly active in that regard, you know, to make sure that we get the word out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, well, that's good. Well, let's talk about the podcast a little bit. The joys yeah. of reading. So. Um, First, we wanted to ask is, it, ask, is there anything you wish you'd known about podcasting for readers? Because that's very different than podcasting for writers or nonfiction type podcasts. 
It is. I And I'm really committed to doing that because when I looked around the book podcast, when I was thinking about doing a podcast, a quick recap, I did a lot of blogs when I was in the business. I did nearly a thousand blogs in my business, which was a health products business. And it was aimed at midlife people. So I did a lot of blogging on sort of midlife sex, romance and health topics. And I felt totally blogged out at the end of that time. (laughs) When I came to writing and they said you had to have an audit platform and have a blog, I thought, no, no, I can't (laughs) stand it. (laughs) So so that's why I got onto the podcast, really. And um, then when I looked around at what was out there, it seemed to be either literary literary, um, podcasts Mm. or else it was writers like Joanna giving very good advice to other writers but Mm -hmm. because I was just starting out number one I didn't feel I had the expertise to do giving advice to other writers and I've I've, and I've never actually I've always my taste has tended more towards genre fiction than literary fiction I mean over the years obviously I've read lots of literary fiction but Mm. I've also got a bit fed up with some of the sort of slightly more pretentious stances of literary fiction and felt that genre fiction had been rather um, undervalued, perhaps mm-hmm. because in the 80s and 90s, a lot of it was written by women, I don't know. But anyway, so mm-hmm. I had a commitment to genre fiction. So that's where it started. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's quite hard to really judge. I'd like to have a closer relationship with my so-called fans. I mean, I've got a really lovely database of people who subscribe to the podcast and they're very stable but I don't get a tremendous amount of feedback I mean if I did a poll saying tell me what you'd like to read I probably wouldn't get a huge response so I still feel a weenie bit as if I'm flying blind in terms of just hoping that I'm meeting their interests you know and and catering for what they're looking for so yeah 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 well you've mentioned a couple of times about just women, you know, women's issues or or not necessarily women's issues, but strong women and, and writing stories about strong women and stuff. And is that something that just comes from your background or is that a hole in the market that you thought needed to be filled, um, you know, portraying strong women, um, interviewing strong women, that kind of thing? I think it's very much part of my DNA, actually, to be <laughs> honest. I'm the oldest of four girls. <laughs> and um, I grew up on a farm here in New Zealand. And I don't know, I just really almost with my mother's milk imbibed the feeling that you had to be able to be independent to have a decent life as a woman, that you couldn't rely on a man. Not that my dad was unreliable, I hasten to add. But we lived on a farm and mum had a very... Um, circumscribed life she didn't drive she just stayed on the farm she'd been she'd been raised in Oxford and she just really found that difficult and and limiting and I I guess as a kid I picked up on those vibes that women needed their freedom and so I've been very much aware of that all my life and of course in journalism when I started out there weren't a lot of women in journalism and I got two very good jobs being editors of publications where I was the boss of men. So I've always had that awareness of um, what it's like to be a woman in a man's world. You know, when I first got into management and journalism, I had this little frame that used to go in my head. If I wasn't paranoid, I would think, and I'd I'd tell myself what I thought was happening politically in the organisation, but I was putting myself down. And after about 18 months, I thought, 
you're not paranoid. This is really happening. Gosh, that's funny. Well, I'm the oldest of five girls. And so, yeah, I get it. And believe me, if you want to set me off, discount me. Like, (laughs) don't, don't listen to my opinion. Or if you listen to it and then just ignore it, I will go completely off on somebody. And I think that I grew up in Texas. I grew up um, with a real strong dad, a real strong mom. But my dad, you know, I mean, he kind of, he kind of discounted girls until we were much older. And um, he's turned his, you know, he's, he's seen the error of his ways. (laughs) But growing up, I, yeah. And I think that's reflected in my writing too. But I think it's important for kind of newer writers go with your strengths. Like people try to find their voice all the time when they're writing and stuff. And I, I was older when I started writing and I think it's come a little bit easier because I sort of knew who I was and I just, I wrote what I knew. I talked about what I knew and, and it sounds like you've done the same thing um, and just sort of, I don't know, imprinted your passions and (laughs) convictions into your writing and, and your podcasting even. Hope so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, another thing we wanted to talk to you about is you, um, nor- I think the last couple of years you've taken the month of January off. And so that's kind of a foreign idea to us in the United States to take more than a week or two off. So tell us about how that, how that goes for you, how it came about and, and um, what, what you get out of it, how sure. it's impacted your podcast and stuff. Yeah. You, you know how it is with, keep maintaining a podcast, a mm-hmm. weekly podcast, and I commit to reading every single woman that I interview, or man, sorry, every author I interview, I commit to reading the most recent book that we're going to be discussing, because I, I hate it when you sense in an interview that the interviewer hasn't actually read the book, and it's just mm. a respectful thing to do, so that's quite time-consuming, as you can assume, imagine, so yeah. Um, I felt it's unless I got a co-host to carry the show for a few weeks here and there to just give me a break, doing a podcast 52 weeks of the year would be just really a bit too hard. And at the beginning, I didn't realise about that thing of doing series like a lot of people like Malcolm Gladwell and and others do. They do series. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that would work for me in the sort of podcast I do anyway. So I, but at the end of each year, the last couple of years, I felt a real need to have a bit of a break. The first year I carried right through January, but I didn't feel the quality was quite there in January because I was just so tired. So last year and this year, New Zealand does tend to shut down in January anyway. It is probably a cultural anomaly here that <laughs> it's our summer season and people just Businesses shut down for three weeks from Christmas Eve or before, and people all just migrate to the beach or the farm or <laughs> out of town. It's just a thing that Kiwis do. Yeah. And so I've allowed myself to do that the last couple of years, and I've gone to my caravan in the Coromandel. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think this year in particular, I think it was fine because just before I did, I did a sort of a bumper podcast where I did the best podcast of 2020. And that wasn't from a quality point of view. It was simply from the number of downloads they had. I I told the audience they were deciding because the thing I hate to do is 
choose between my own authors. Um, right. But the ones that just got the most downloads. And that episode kept on being downloaded through January. It was actually quite a popular episode. So I felt that was quite a reasonable holding episode. And I'll probably try and do something similar again this year. And it doesn't seem to have really affected the the numbers. Now we're back in, our, in quite strong form. Um, the numbers aren't, are, are still climbing from last year. So mm-hmm. it hasn't affected me too badly. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I think that's a really smart thing to do because if you do kind of a roundup podcast in at the end of the year then when people listen to it they may go oh I totally missed these three and they may go back and find them so it's kind of like highlighting because a lot of I mean podcasts are a little bit different from some content when you put out and it just kind of disappears after a week or two podcasts have a longer life I think but even those first you know like after you get a month or two away you those podcasts can kind of fade. So it, it would highlight the, the whole podcast from the year. So I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Also, it was quite interesting um, to just see what the, what the highest rating ones were. It probably helps you to gauge what people are looking for as well. Right. You know? So it was, yeah. And it was pleasing to me because there was a good broad spread of both genres and even countries that the authors came from it was mm-hmm. genuinely an even spread between the states and Australia and the UK and and I thought oh gosh I really like the sound of my my listeners they're kind of <laughs> nice balanced open-minded people you know <laughs> that's great yeah that well great. I found out that Kiwis take the month of January off because my editor is from New Zealand and with my third book I think I tried to set up an a you know like a an appointment for her to take my book and she's like well we really I don't work in January much I mean (laughs) I think she does some but but they take a lot of time off and I I was like oh that's fine no problem we set something else up and I got off the the message with her and thought they take a whole month off (laughs) but I was kind of jealous and uh, yeah so I love it, Marina. <laughs> I kind of like the idea. I do too. I do too. I think it's smart. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Well, tell us what you think you've done, Jenny, to set yourself up for success. What's the best thing you've done to set yourself up for success? Probably that's that old hoary thing that they all emphasize, starting the newsletters and getting a database you know it is a lovely feeling to know that you've got a few thousand people who are wanting to hear from you and it's something that keeps Mm -hmm. you going so um Mm -hmm. I do two newsletters one for the podcast and one for my books Mm -hmm. the books one is slightly less frequent because I I feel as if I have slightly less to talk about with the podcast I let them know every single week who the new person is. And I do quite a few book giveaways through that as well. So I I feel as if I have developed that thing they call an author platform. Mm -hmm. And and I've sort of got the foundations in the ground. And and as if if I really now just have that chance to to grow from there, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm interested, how did you grow your podcast newsletter and how did you grow your fiction newsletter did you Um, use different tactics yeah yeah the fiction newsletter I mainly have relied on that thing of giving away book one in the series Mm -hmm. and I'm still doing that although I've just changed it 
now I'm doing a double a, a book bundle of book one and book four, which I hadn't really exactly thought it out, but book four is like a series prequel and it's a novella. And that helps to set you up to understand a bit better where some of the other books come in as well. So I've just changed that to a book bundle that we're giving away now, a full-length novel and a novella. Mm -hmm. So mainly that way. And then with the podcast, I think just really a lot of Facebook advertising. As I say, last year, nearly every week, I gave away um, I gave away the author that I was interviewing some of her books, and I, and I just funded that. I did it as as ebooks, yeah. digital, and I just funded it rather than bother with going to publishers or even asking the the, the author myself. It isn't that expensive to be able right. to just give away a few books, right. and I put all that on Facebook, and I think that helped as well. Mm-hmm. So do you run? Do you run Facebook ads for your non for your podcast? Um, Sarah, Sarah, I I do notes? do. I do it. No, I don't do podcast ads for the podcast. Okay. Uh, um, Facebook ads. I do some Facebook ads for the books. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. And I do actually pay somebody from an agency just a modest amount of money to keep that going. He looks after that mm-hmm. um, side of it. But I did used to just boost the the, the podcast um, book okay. giveaways. Just okay. do the boost yeah, post cool. thing. Yeah yeah. 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 That's really smart because you're. Mm-hmm pulling in people who are interested in those types of books, which is great. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Um, yeah. We don't have a newsletter for our podcast. Um, no, we've kind of mm-hmm. not done we that. Have we have our own, <laughs> we have our own newsletter. <laughs> we do. Yeah. There's always room for improvement, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your books and your podcast. And your podcast. Yeah. Sure. Well, now, um, my books, the site is jennywheeler.biz. All all my books there can be found and also that free giveaway for book one and four. And the podcast is thejoysofbingereading.com. Binge reading, the idea coming from binge watching on Netflix. And an article I read quite a few years ago saying that people were switching their reading reading behaviors encouraged by binge watching on Netflix they wanted to binge read as well and I can actually fully understand that myself because I notice it with myself if I see something on Netflix I might go and actually even start reading the books or (laughs) if I've sat and watched eight episodes of you know Homeland then I feel like going and having a binge read on something else so yeah Mm -hmm. yes that's true and is your podcast weekly Yes, it is weekly, okay. and it normally right. I post it on Mondays here in New Zealand, which is probably Sunday mostly in the states. Yeah, sixty yeah. percent yeah. of my audience is the US because I have really focused because my books are set in California. I've really right. and and some of the Facebook advertising that I've done, I've really focused on California as the state where I'm. And and I noticed the other day, actually, I was looking at the figures. My highest um, listenership is in California. And followed by Texas, actually, Jane. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not surprised at all. (laughs) Not surprised at all. Well, we'll have all those links and um, all the information in the show notes, and that will be at wishidknownthen.com. And we'll see everybody next week. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here, Jenny. Thank you. It's been a lovely talk. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. We hope this episode inspired you, empowered you, and made you laugh a little bit too. If you loved it, tell your friends about it. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We look forward to being with you again next week.